Catch new episodes of Dial the Gate weekends at youtube.com slash dialthegate. And for the latest schedule, visit dialthegate.com. Welcome to episode 30 of Dial the Gate. My name is David Reed. Thank you for sticking around for your Sunday afternoon slash evening slash morning for all you Europeans at this point. I have Garwin Sanford, Nareem from SG1, Simon from Atlantis uh, standing by here in just a moment. And so what's going to happen with this particular episode is that we have a great deal of, of content to cover. I'm uh, hoping that Garwin's going to be able to join us uh, once again in 2021 to go into more detail about each of his individual uh, shows. We're definitely going to talk about his characters here. But this man is a fascinating guy, and he has brought on several exhibits uh, to discuss and show us. We're going to talk about some of his artwork. And so that's going to be happening here in uh, just a moment. And we're going to also be inviting uh, people in the YouTube gallery to ask your questions as well for Garwin. Before I bring him on, if you like Stargate and want to see more content like this on YouTube, it would mean a great deal if you click the like button. It really makes a difference with YouTube's algorithm and will definitely help the show uh, grow its audience. So please also consider sharing uh, this well as well this uh, video with a Stargate friend. And if you want to get notified about future episodes, click that subscribe icon. Giving the bell icon a click will notify you the moment a new video drops and you'll get my notifications of any last minute guest changes. This is key if you plan on watching live and clips from this live stream will be released over the course of the next several days on both the Dial the Gate and GateWorld.net YouTube channels. Without further ado, Mr. Garwin Sanford. Hello. Hello, my friend. <laughs> How you doing? Good I'm, to see you. David. It's good to see you. I feel like I'm on Masterpiece Theater with you. Uh, hi. Welcome to Masterpiece Theater. <laughs> We're having, yeah. Bobo Fett. Is it, uh, do you wear this Bobo Fett or not? <laughs> What'd you say? Is that Bobo Fett behind you? Who is oh, that? Um, oh, this no. is this over here oh, is yeah. This is an ancient uh, spacesuit from Destiny from Stargate Universe. But first, oh. it was an Asgard in Stargate Atlantis, and then they <laughs> repurposed it because, according to Joseph Malazzi, the R and D for the three suits, this is one of them, was a hundred thousand a piece. That's kind of ridiculous, don't you think? Wow. Yeah. No kidding. The amount of money that they spend on shows, you know, they should give it more to actors. Well, they, they repurposed. I did a, a a show called Eureka. Yes. And they, I at one point, I'm playing a senator, and they bring in a. Uh, I'm supposed to walk in to see the entity, this big entity that they've had in that room in the vault. Okay. And they they put me in a spacesuit, and it was from um, uh, Mission to Mars. So they re, they shipped them around, right? God. And it had a cooling suit underneath, and it had to have a air a, a fan to pump air into it so you could breathe and. Uh, yeah, so I, I can't imagine how much that cost because it was. Uh, it took me an hour and a half to get into the suit. So. Oh my gosh! <laughs> Please tell me it had fans on the inside of it. That's, they did, and we. It was messing up sound, of course. I'd have to loop everything. So I said, "Well, let's just see what happens when you turn it off. Maybe I can do that." Thirty seconds, like later, I couldn't breathe because there's just enough air inside this little 
So yeah, no, that was, it was definitely a, a good thing. And you got very hot. So they had a big, the front pack on the suit was actually full of ice and they ran water wow. through it, which ran through tubes in your suit in the bot, like a tight body suit with all these. So it cooled you off. It kept you from expiring from the heat. Right. It's easy to anyway. forget just how, um, how much heat our bodies generate. You know, we are, we are little thermal reactors and it's just, it's just one of those wonders of nature that, yeah, when you put us into a, a confined space, we, uh, find out just how toasty we are real quick. Like a small, like a small theater. <laughs> That's exactly right. People, all of a sudden it's like, man, it's warm in here. That's exactly right. When they're all, when everyone's all together. So you and I have been, have been talking, um, here and there, uh, since this whole thing started, um, how are you doing? How are you uh, managing to keep sane? And uh, uh, what's what's been what's been going on while we've been basically you know sheltering in place? Well, since the quarantine started, what that's back in March fifteenth. Mm-hmm. I've literally um, uh, when the when COVID up here in Vancouver dropped to zero cases for a while. We were after the first wave. Um, I actually got to see my family a little bit, you know, my extended family. They could, we could actually visit uh, with social distancing in the backyard, mm-hmm. right? You know, we have a big deck and mm-hmm. all that stuff. So we would meet that way, uh, but very, really reduced. And then it became, um, the spike went back up. And when it went back up, I decided to pull myself out of the acting market completely because sets, the actors, none of them can wear masks. I wouldn't want to be responsible for giving this to somebody if I happen to be positive. I wouldn't want to get it and pass it on to friends or family. So I basically quarantined myself. For, you know, uh, I go out every two weeks to shop for groceries and get cat food. <laughs> and that's it, right? So literally, uh, I stay at home and I go out on the bike and stuff. I don't go to my thing. I used to go to the gym every day and I don't. I haven't been to the gym in eight months. So I tried to do that stuff at home, not as successful as I was at the gym, but that sort of There's thing. There's some things you can do for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And then, as I mentioned to you before in the past, I <laughs> decided to teach myself to speak French. Uh, I'd had high school French, but that was almost useless. So for eight months, every day, I work at French and I've been very, I'm happy with what's happening with that. It's been one of the uh, bonuses of being shut in my house for, you know, uh, eight months. So that's been good. That's been good. Have you been doing any art? Uh, not really. I've been playing music. I've done a little bit of sketching, but I haven't done any um, endeavors. The My mask sculptures and stuff that we're going to talk about a little bit, you mentioned, mm-hmm. um, that all is, uh, I have three kilns up on the Sunshine Coast, which is away from where I am on a property up there with a kiln shed and stuff. Um, so traveling back and forth for that isn't going to happen. So I haven't been doing any of those things. And... Uh, the French has been coming such an obsession. <laughs> I have, I've literally spent a good chunk of my day every day working on French. So I, I've eschewed doing any of the artwork, uh, but I have been playing the guitar, which is nice. Oh, well, there you go. That's great. Wow, I'd love to hear you play at some point. You know, one of the one of the um, uh, oh, what do you call it? Uh, cliches is how how the how obsessed the French are about their French. You know, now you're obsessing over French. Can you see how obsessed they are about their French? <laughs> I, I think the obsession comes from two things. In Canada, particularly, 
uh, I have personal experience with this because I come from Nova Scotia. As okay. Agree. And in Nova Scotia, there was a, a real um, French-English um, difficulty. Let's put it that way. Uh, they went to war in Europe many times, so the colonies would go to war as well. So uh, there's areas in, in Nova Scotia that now still have large French populations, but we had a really bad period, the expulsion of the Acadians. The Acadians were uh, rounded up after one of the wars. They were told, oh, come on in and sign a, um, an affidavit saying that you will be loyal to the king and you can stay. Well, when they did that, they took all the men and the young boys and they just arrested them, loaded them on ships and sent them to New Orleans, to France, to Jamaica, somewhere else. There were three or four places. And they just literally took the French population and expelled them. They, and when the ship was full, they would just stop. It was in the middle of a family. They didn't care. They what treated year was pretty- this, Garwin? Oh. 1900? Uh, 19th century? No, no, no. It was about, this would be late 16, early 1700s. Okay. Because they started uh, the French uh, Port Royal. Uh, I think that was settled in the mid-1600s. And then afterwards, the English arrived, and then there was a fair amount of infighting. But what's happened in Nova Scotia is that many of the communities that are French, um, I know that I, I know some people with very complicated French names that they still have to this day, but they speak very little French. And in some communities, like on, in my hometown, there was a person that lived down the street, and their name was uh, Bootlier. But, of course, that's an, an English version of Boutier. So it's the same thing as in New Orleans. They'll have uh, Beauchamp instead of Beauchamp, right? So they've anglified, anglified it and it. They've, lost, they've lost their language. <clears throat> so I can understand why in Quebec they realize they're surrounded by a whole English country. And that English country then can dominate and they can slowly lose their language because they've seen it happen in some places. So they've enacted laws right to keep french yeah. uh, that way and in in france you even have like a an academy de français or something it's a an academy that protects the language from the influx of anglos uh, anglo uh, versions of their things like hot dog and all the things that get hamburger they you know they still use them but they will come up with an official word so that it keeps french so they have a replacement yeah because I mean, yes. these these words, especially in English, are just growing left and right, and it's, I mean, yeah. like you just can't keep up with it. Yeah, like, yeah, it'd like, be yeah, a struggle. Well, the word computer uh, in French, ordinateur, and in Quebec, that's shortened to mon ordi, my ordi, my computer. So, but they've given it a word of its own, right? Wow. So as as it as the technology moves in, they look for this. However, uh, in Quebec, you know, c'est le fun là. Uh, they they take the word and they make it fun uh, instead of fun, but it means they're, they're incorporating those words. And I completely understand why they would want to protect their language. Oh, of just, course, yeah. What what I mean, it's 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 who you are. So absolutely, yeah. the culture. Yeah. Garwin, uh, thank you again for for coming on. Uh, I I really wanted to know uh, where you're from. Uh, obviously now we now we know specifically um but how that influenced you as a person and uh, uh who in your life uh the people who have influenced you the most can you talk a little bit about that well nova scotia is a very um especially when i grew, was born and grew up 
um, it was a, a province that was a have-not province, as I call them. In, in Canada, they call them have provinces and have not provinces. So there are provinces that make lots of money, their economy is very strong, and then they have not provinces and provinces. And in Nova Scotia, they were uh, an economic powerhouse until they um, dredged out the St. Lawrence River and allowed ship traffic to come from Europe all the way up to Ottawa and to into the interior of Ontario. Up until then, the boats stopped in Nova Scotia. So there was quite an industry, the shipping from the boats there, they would land and then all the economy that was based on shipping it from there into the interior. So they went from a have province to a have not province. And when I was growing up, that was one of the biggest things. People didn't have a lot of money. It was subsistence living in a way. And the person that really does have the strongest influence on my life was my mother. Uh, I, I was raised by a single mother and, uh, and then she did uh, mar remarried um, when I was about 10. My stepfather was really, uh, uh, he took on a whole family, uh, which was really something, you know, like there were four of us. So he took okay. on a whole family. And, uh, but it, she was a very, very, very strong woman. And she just passed away uh, October 2nd. And that has left a bit of a hole, uh, I must say. Um, she was 94, so she lived a long life. Yeah, she hung in there. All right, good for That's, her. You know, that was, she was the biggest influence in my life. And it, it allowing to me to develop, because I turned to her for everything as well, because I didn't have a father figure. So she was really, um, yeah, she was instrumental in who I became. It allowed that um, the feminine side of me to grow and develop. And I consider those to be some of my greatest strengths, that side of me. Was she artistic too? Nope, not particularly at all. She Isn't was, that interesting? No, not at all. In fact, neither was I in any way until I became an adult. You know, that was, that's the thing about um, the philosophy of my whole life, I think. Um, we live with our parents and they define who we are for the first part of our life. And then when you walk away from that, you can either let them define who you're going to be with their expectations maybe, mm -hmm. or with their demands on what you become or they're, they're suggesting and saying, no, you've got to become this or that in your life, et cetera. And she never did that with me ever. She just supported the choices I made. And when I made those choices, I began to realize that that was the gift is that I get to make my own choices and begin to decide what of my youth I want to carry with me and what doesn't work for me may have worked for her, but doesn't work for me. And I can let go of those things without feeling guilty and moving on. Right. So that was one of the gifts she gave was allowing me to have that instilling enough love in, in me, unconditional love to give me the confidence to go out and possibly fall flat on my face and know there'd always be someone to help pick me up. But it's okay to fall flat on your face. In fact, you I, 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 it keeps you humble and it also means you're learning something because mm. you, if you fall flat on your face, it's because you didn't quite know it. That means you're going to learn, right? That you're going to grow. So that's that's the big one. So yeah, she's been the major influence on my life, without a doubt. How old were you when uh, you discovered the craft, specifically acting in this in this case? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, well, there are a number of crafts that he's engaged. I was, I was, I was six was, years old and I knew I wanted to build my own house, and so I did. <laughs> that's you. 
that's you. I just don't know what age. I say no. You uh, built your I, own house. You're a pilot. You know, you you I are can, you are a jack of all trades. I consider myself uh, my birth. Really, I consider the beginning of my life is when I went my first year to university. Okay. And I was the first person in my family to go to university. Okay. Um, um, my brother and sister both are professionals, uh, accountants, and uh, lab tech, and became a sales rep for medical equipment, et cetera, et cetera. They moved on. They were very successful. But um, I went to university, and um, that I began to realize was um, what I learned in university was they gave me a, the ability to have an analytical mind to question and to reason and to think things through and to actually do research other than just on Facebook. Now you actually do research, you dig into stuff and find out from various sources, from various types of places and try to find peer related, et cetera, et cetera. Because I was Mr. Science brain, right? This was my thing. I was not an artistic person in any way. I've never picked up a instrument. I never, uh, drew anything. I mean, in school you draw stuff, but not, never was drawn. I spent my youth basically misspent in a pool hall and, you know, literally avoiding work. I was an insecure and very um, lazy person, I think. At Why? That time. Because it was... Um, Is this your own way of rebelling? I don't know if it was rebelling or not. I think it was because I had a lack of focus. I didn't know where, where I wanted to go. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do with my life. So I just, Can't blame you. Had to keep, you know, I just knew that by the time I get out of high school, as I was reaching the end of high school, that I did not want to uh, do a nine to five job that much. I knew. So I went, well, university then seems to be the choice. Get good marks in high school, go to university and see what that does for me. And that's what I ended up doing. And I, you know, the old adage that um, education broadens your horizons, which, you know, they'd always say to you. And I never, I went, what does that even mean? But this was actually the truth. I went there and it opened up worlds to me. My friends that I met there, one of my roommates in university was a, a cartoonist. He loved to draw cartoons. He was very good at it. And I went, ooh. And then I went, so I started to try to do that. Other friends of mine were carving in wood and some of them were uh, playing guitar. And I went, oh, wow, look at this stuff. I had not been exposed to any of that where I grew up. In Nova Scotia, one of the things about living in a subsistence um, environment is that it's this. Everything's about making money to just put the roof over your head and put food on the table. And there is no nothing left over after that. In a lot of cases, it's very working class, very um, focused on just survival, subsistence. So as a result of that, you don't have those exposures. And I'm living in a rural setting in Nova Scotia where there were no examples. Uh, there was no, nobody I knew did art. Nobody I knew played music, right, where I grew up. Whereas in Cape Breton, my friends who were in the same situation, they turned to music. I think it was their French heritage. They play fiddle, they sing, they play guitar. They're always hanging out together, singing and playing. And that exposure to those people in Cape Breton, for example, from my friends in university, opened up all of this for me at the age of 17, 18. And by the time I was 19, I started to try to pursue those things because I saw them doing it. Big, big thing. (laughs) So this is um, Sitting Bull. Yeah. These are all First Nations, right? Yes, it was when I was living in Los Angeles, I went down there in 1989, 90, and I stayed for four or five years. 
uh, I started to work in pen and ink and mainly because of Don Davis. I had been doing, uh, yes, uh, I saw him on TV the other day and it really teared me up. Um, I miss that guy a lot. Yeah. Um, he was um, a dear, dear man. And what happened was is, uh, I've always been buying in pencil since university. And I don't never moved beyond the medium. I just loved working in pencil. It was what I knew. And I continued to do that. And Don Davis, I went down to Los Angeles because an agent had seen a couple of my shows. They saw a uh, wise guy, which was a TV show with uh, about uh, an undercover cop. And Ray Sharkey was one of the guest stars for the, he was for the first season. And then they killed him off. And in the, season opener or the season closer, I can't remember which one it was, they brought him back in the Leeds Dreams, right? So um, when they did that, I was in that episode. The guy was in an insane asylum and I played one of the crazy people in the insane asylum and I deal with him. And it was, um, uh, James Whitmore Jr. was directing and he fought to get me in that role. I was a young Canadian actor with not a lot of experience at the time and he convinced them when I auditioned that I was the only one to do this role mainly because uh, the, the casting person in those days, you showed up half an hour before the audition and got the sides and you just read them. And as I was reading them, I thought, okay, I'm going to get really close to the reader because it's a very intimate scene. And when I get in there, there was a boardroom table that was like eight feet across. <laughs> of course. Oh dear. And the guy's a bit of a, a bit of a loony. So when the audition started, I sat, I went and sat on the table and crossed my legs and scrunched my way across the table sitting on the table till I got really close to her and did the scenes and he loved this. So he fought to get me in this role. They said, I looked too much like Ken wall, who was the lead in the show. And he said, he said, no, he doesn't No, He doesn't. But anyway, <laughs> it gave me an opportunity to do a role that was way beyond my experience at that time. It was a great guest star role. And it was really, um, I had, I ate it up. I had a lot of fun with it. So an agent saw that episode. And at the same week, I did a miniseries with Farrah Fawcett and that was one of my first major stars with, you know, in a, it was in the second half, I play her boyfriend and I get her pregnant and it was the small sacrifices it was called. And it was, um, she plays Diana Downs who ended up shooting her children because she was in love with some guy. Yeah. It was based on a true story. Wow. So th these characters were real. And anyway, uh, the agent had seen both of those in the same week and went, who is this guy? And they actually flew up to Vancouver and met with me and said, we'd love to sponsor you. You can come down. We'll help you get your um, papers, your visas. So if you want to join, you know, if you want to come, we're, we'll do that. And I said, Hey, why not? Of course, so I went of down really quickly. And then I didn't have a place to stay yet. So I was literally going to get a place. And I called Don and said, Hey, I'm going to be in town um, at a hotel. I'm looking for a place. And Don goes, well, girl, why don't you come stay with me? I got a second bedroom. <laughs> he was filming Twin Peaks at the time. Yes. So I stayed with Dawn and I stayed there for a few months in Van Nuys. I had to get out. Van Nuys was like in June was 102 degrees. Mm -hmm. It was just, I, I just went, no, I can't, I can't be here, Dawn. I'm sorry. So I moved to Santa Monica and got a place there. But when I first got there, Dawn was, I was drawing with something and Dawn walks in one time and sets a little package in front of me. He goes, this is an old set of rapidograph pens of mine. You can have those if you want. You can maybe try working in pen and ink. <laughs> so that's what started me working in pen wow. and ink. Wow. Right? 
was Don Davis, right? Again, all of my ins, all the things that got me into art were always somebody else kind of dropping things in my lap, you know, and just saying, "Here, why don't you try this?" Yeah. Anyway, pushes so. you. You know that some people just have instincts about us, and so you know what you you may you may hate you you may suck at this, but you may enjoy sucking at it, you know. <laughs> What was it? Is it? I can't remember if it was. Uh, oh, Kurt Vonnegut. That said, I can't remember if it was him or not. Somebody said, "Look, it doesn't matter. Just do it." Yeah. It never matters if you get good at it. Yeah. Or if, but it's it's the process. It's finding a way to express yourself, and some, uh, and it doesn't matter what the end result is. Yeah. It's the pro. It's the process, right? Yeah. There's there's a quote that I have have always had rattling around in my head for about 10 years, 10, 15 years now. If you can't learn to do something well, then learn to enjoy doing it poorly. And I mean, it's a, it's, it's from a demotive, a demotive, uh, demotivating series. But at the same yeah. time, I think that there's something true to that. It's just, if, if, if you, if you are in a position where you, you are going to do something, why are you not enjoying it or finding some way to enjoy it? Because it's only going to increase your odds in actually doing it better. You know, it really is. You're going to get better. It doesn't matter what the end, how, where you end up. You're just going to get better. Yeah. Right. That's just the way it is. So you while enjoy, you know, while you were living with, with, we have some Wi-Fi trouble. Um, while you were living with Don, I want you to tell this story. The, uh, he, he was, <laughs> see, he knows it. I know which story you're talking about. I told it once at a convention. You did with Ruby. Yes. Yeah. He was auditioning uh, for Hook. Uh, well, he had. He'd already done it. He had the job. He, uh, he had the job. And I can't remember. I think I knew that he had the job. But, you know, I'd been, I, I'd moved to L.A. And two weeks later, I get a recurring role in a series pilot that Tom Selleck was producing called Revealing Evidence with Stanley Tucci and Mary Page Keller. And it was going to be filmed in Hawaii. And unfortunately, most of my stuff was going to be in Los Angeles because we were lawyers in an office with Mary mm-hmm. Page Keller and Stanley Tucci was a cop. But half of it was filmed in Hawaii, so I knew I'd go there sometimes. I thought, <laughs> I've been there two weeks. And Tom Selleck, I have to get my visas, right? I hadn't even, I barely started the process when I got down there. And of course, a letter from, I had a letter from Farrah Fawcett, one from Bill Bixby, uh, because I'd worked with them and said, hey, I'm moving to the States. I need letters to help yeah. me get into the country. And then Tom Selleck writes a letter saying, uh, we need to film. Well, he starts filming in two weeks. We need his visa right away. And of course, bingo. So I thought, hey, I'm doing pretty good. You know, this don't here a couple of weeks. And I come home one day and turn on the answering machine and on comes, hello, Don. This is, and it's his agent calling, saying, um, your breakfast meeting with Steven Spielberg, Dustin Hoffman, and um, um, Dustin Hoffman and Robin Williams. Robin Williams is on for tomorrow morning. So it'll be nine o'clock at, and they told where. So I went, oh my God. (laughs) So, So I sit down and I'm waiting for Don to come home and Don comes home. And I said, oh, there's a message for you on the machine. I, you know, I thought it was, I was checking messages. So I watch him as he turns it on and he listens and he makes a little note and then reaches, reaches to push the erase button. <laughs> I scream, stop. <laughs> what are you nuts? <laughs> right. I, you, I, 
you could dine out on this for years. You, could, every, you come home with somebody and say, oh, excuse me, I just want to check my messages and push that. Come on. <laughs> Don goes, oh, don't be silly. <laughs> he pushes the race. But that's who Don was, right? Don was just the most humble man and such a sweet guy. But I still, that story still makes me laugh because it's just a story about who he was, but also it put me in my place pretty quickly. <laughs> it's it's so easy for us to, you know, take ourselves so seriously and everything. And he just, he just never did, you know, he, he fell ass backwards into being an actor. It wasn't really anything that he set out to do. He set out, I mean, he, he worked with his hands, he carved, you know, he drew and those, those were the things that defined him. You know, the general Hammond and everything else was a bonus and, and we're, we're better for it. Well, Don started when I, met him he was stunt doubling for dana elkar mm -hmm. on macgyver that's one of my first episodes of macgyver he was stunting for dana that's how i met him and he had been a professor at ubc the university of british columbia and then someone said well you know don you're a pretty physical guy you might want to try so he did stunts first and then they gave him a part in something a small part and then they went hey this guy can act yeah he can <laughs> he never even studied acting this is like and he carved, he carved in wood, he would do animal life, he did drawings, he did, yeah. like, he was a very inspiring guy, and very quiet, very humble, just went about it like, oh, just me, you know, and never ever tattered his own horn, tooted his mm -hmm. own horn, or tattered his accomplishments at all. And you'd go in, and in his studio, there'd be all this art on the walls, and every bit of it was his. You know, beautiful, beautiful pieces of... Uh, You'd never know it by watching Stargate. And paintings and carvings. It was really something, you know? Do you have any of his art? No, I don't. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, I've, yeah. I, I've always wanted to try and get a hold of it. There, There is some out there. His his uh, website, donsdavisart.com, it's not around anymore. So oh, of course. They've, dis yeah. they've discontinued it, so... Yeah. But... Um, Okay, so you met him on on MacGyver. Did yeah. uh, had you seen uh, the Stargate in um, the theaters when the original had come out? Yeah, the original, the very first one. I'm sorry, I, I lost you. Yeah, so the the uh, yeah. the, the feature yeah. film you, the, you the saw in the, the theaters. One. The first one, yeah, yeah. I didn't see Continuum. No, I mean, I mean, back in the day in the '90s. So you, you yes, saw the saw first that. film. Yeah. What'd you did think? You, yeah. What did, did you think that the uh, that the film you know had a promise for a, a franchise with nearly four hundred episodes in it? <laughs> it didn't dawn on me. I enjoyed the movie. You know, it was I, I did enjoy it, and it made you think and whatever. But it was just a one-off, another science fiction show, and I didn't think there'd be another movie ever, right? Uh, you know, and I, the first time I heard about the series, it's because it was filming in Vancouver, but I had an audition for it, and uh, it wasn't until. I was shooting in South Africa and I got a call from my agent just before I'd stayed there about a month. I shot for a couple of weeks and then the director and I went on a little walking safari for a couple of weeks. We didn't shoot anything, just took pictures. Yeah. And we had a, a, a guy that took us around and we went and spent a couple of weeks in the bush. When I came back, I was going to fly out in a couple of days and the agent phone and said, they've made you an offer for a character in Stargate. And I said, Oh, and he goes, yeah. So it's a, Apparently, I love interest for Amanda Tapping's character. So I said, oh, well, I'm leaving, so they can't get a script to me. 
there was no emails. There was no sending emails uh, at that time. There was just, uh, it wasn't the same as it mm-hmm. is now where you get everything instantly. So there was no way to get me the script. And I kept thinking, oh, gee. So I flew to London and then had an, a layover, uh, discovered a tick in my leg and had to go get it cut out while I was waiting. And then flew home and picked up the script the night I got back. The next day was wardrobe call, and the very next day was my first day of shooting. So I had a whole half a day to prep for the first day shooting. And, and so I didn't know anything about the character. I didn't really have a lot of time to consider how he was going to unfold. I just had to go with my instincts. And William Garrity, Bill was directing. Mm. And so I said to Bill, I said, I know this is going to sound a little strange. The old cliche of, of, um, an alien not using contractions. I said, I know is hackneyed, but this guy is, there's, he's so, this, my take on this culture is very formal. They're just very formal, very reserved. And, and the familiarity factor, they're a bit pulled back. So, and then it gives him somewhere to go when he opens up to Amanda in a way. Mm-hmm. And when he goes outside and sees animals for the first time in his life, um, et cetera, all that sort of thing. So we played with that a little and Tobin Bell and myself and Tobin. Bill talked about how we would, you know, found the Tobin race and uh, what, what they were as people. So we just kind of did it with a wing and a prayer as we went, trusting our instincts. And Bill was really supportive about it. So we just kind of ended up doing it. And of course, it was one episode, right? That was all there's going to be. And up, thank you very much. Right. We disappear off because the knocks take us away and bye bye. And then uh, the next thing I know, I have another episode and then the third episode. And, but, and I keep forgetting that it's only been three episodes. Of SG-1, yeah. Yeah, but now being attached to Amanda's character so intimately, that is why he's, I think he survived so well. You know, <laughs> only three, three episodes out of 400, you know, <laughs> it's not really, you wouldn't, uh, so I'm pleased that he resonated somehow. Well, I think it's also uh, a f- I, I think that you need to give yourself a little bit more credit than that. I think that that what you guys were achieving was was a the the first instance of us coming across a technologically advanced uh, species that wasn't trying to kill us, um, but that also uh, didn't want anything to do with us. And you know that had to have been frustrating for that team because we're needing allies out there. This this threat is looming, and they don't want to help. You know, and then uh, begrudgingly uh, through circumstances and and Scara coming to Tolana and everything else, you know, they they we kind of get roped into to things with each other where they do discover that okay, yeah, you know what, yeah, they are primitives, but you know, they're nice primitives. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, we still do want to give them the technology. It's only because with the go old threatening. My homework. Exactly was, right. That's and then the curia giving up. Uh, the ghost. Don't spoil uh, it. Uh, Don't spoil it. You're going oh, too fast. Wait, wait. Okay. So. <laughs> Gosh. <laughs> oh man, how was um, that cast and crew and the quality of the scripts from season one to season five? Was it? Um, how, well, how, I think the scripts got better. These scripts got better. I think so. I think they're, they're, they're always, one of the things I liked about that is that they cite that the reason why that show resonates so well, isn't just because of it being <clears throat> otherworldly and sci-fi is that they had archetypes. 
you know, if you're looking at, um, there's the, the, the hand solo hero, you know, <laughs> that there, there are archetypes, right? There's, and they drew them very well, right? We have the science nerd guy and we've got, you know, so the strong woman character and et cetera, et cetera. So they resonate with us because like Joseph Campbell talks about the uh, hero's journey. That's right. right. And Star Wars, I mean, um, Lucas admits that his stories were taken right out of that compendium. And that's when they, uh, Bill Moyer interviewed Joseph Campbell and did that series of interviews at Lucas Ranch at Skywalker, whatever it's called. Yeah, Skywalker Ranch. Yeah. So, uh, and I'm a big fan of Joseph Campbell's take on the the warrior and the sage and the mage and all the things that go on. So that was one of the reasons why it resonated, I think so well is that, and then I thought the stories get better, right? They did. Um, because with the wealth uh, that the, that cast brought to the, to the stories themselves, the writers then recognized what was being brought and would expand on that. So it was a real marriage of the, the charisma and the talent of the cast. Plus, the writers recognizing what was there and what they had and would run with it. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's, so that's, there's a, if you're going to have success in the business, I think those things are necessary and those things they had in spades and they were good with the science of it. Those, the sets were good, you know, so, and the cast, I got to admit, you know, I'd worked with Richard on two MacGyvers, I guess started on two MacGyvers. Um, I did uh, Booker with uh, Christopher judge mm. Both of us had recurring roles on that show um, in Vancouver. Um, I knew of Amanda Tapping. I hadn't met Michael before all this started. But, um, you know, it, it was, and the chemistry that they were able to pull off between themselves on screen was, again, another one of those. And you were talking about taking yourself seriously. There was a lot of humor in that show, show as well. You know, what is it? Rich- so you hadn't, you hadn't met Amanda yet. Um, and then day one, you're supposed to go in and say, Oh, I have a crush at the minimum, you know, at at most you're my, you're my guardian angel, you know, how do you flip that switch on? Or was, was it just easy with Amanda? Because it's Amanda tapping for crying out loud. Yeah, exactly. Well, first off, we didn't actually, uh, luckily there's been many shows where I have done where my first scene with the female lead was the love scene. You know, it's like, oh, God, could we just get to know each other a little bit first? I mean, the- buy a co- cup of coffee, please yeah. give us give us an hour. Love scenes are very awkward. I mean, you get the they're choreographed and they're just not comfortable. But um, so but anyway, we did. Uh, I, I believe we actually did the saving on the planet first. So it, it was I, I didn't have to jump right into that. We got to know each other a little. And the beauty of it is, is that Amanda is such a consummate professional. Yeah. and an amazing actor it's one of the few tv sets that i've been on where the lead will say at lunchtime do you want to work on the scenes so we'd go to the trailer and all while we're eating lunch talking about what we wanted to do rehearsing finding connections finding ways in to make the script more real to make it uh find out what we wanted to do with each other and, and then played when we got there and she Every episode I did, she was the same. Five years later, if it was episode five, I can't remember which season. Yeah, season one, five. Season five. Uh, she was doing exactly the same thing. She had not changed a whit. And when you do that kind of schedule, a lot of actors start getting comfortable 
and a little lazy and they'll just kind of go, you know, and they start to rely on the tricks because you do get tired. I had a series regular, I got a series regular on a show called Hawkeye and I was exhausted by the end of that seven months. I mean, I was really, really tired because you work nonstop. If you take it seriously, mm-hmm. you know, your days off, you're learning lines for the next week and your lunchtime and every evening until you fall asleep is learning lines for the next episode while you're filming this episode. And you get and you can understand why they find shortcuts and kind of rely on the tricks where you're not really doing it. You're just, I call it schmacting. Schmacting, phoning it in. Past. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> She's never, ever done that. I've never seen her do that once, you know? Yeah. So, 90% of my scenes were with her and it was, she was always like that. So it was a joy to do. There was no doubt and made it so um, easy and easeful. So it was, it was a delight. It really was. What was that like going from SG one to Atlantis? Was that, was it exactly the same? Was it, you know, Oh, this is, this is clearly, um, a sibling to the other one. It's got a different vibe to it. Tori's a different actress, you know? Again, yeah. again, a love interest. Um, were there any any standout differences? Well. I mean, A, you, you have one line in your first episode. No kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so there's that. No kidding. <laughs> it was something like that. Yeah, yeah or t- t- tell me, I can't remember what the line was, but it said you're... Your cell provide your is out of certain. Your uh, your your caller is out of the area. <laughs> yeah, I said, no kidding. Whatever yeah. I said, it was one line. So it was a very easeful way of getting into it. I just showed up and looked at the television, and I had no idea where they were taking it. I don't think they did either at the time. They thought they had liked what I did on Stargate, obviously on SG One. So the producers turned to that, and they offered me that role as well, and I just. Went, great that sounds wonderful i'd love to do it right and then the next episode i do is the uh, sh- they're dying they're all dying and the aliens who are seeing them die give them their dream in their head right to ease their passing so they'll be happy and she wanted to come home so she sees me and you know we have a loving you know that was really fun again it was nice uh with me i divorced myself from my old characters so simon was completely different for me Okay. You know, he was not anywhere near his, uh, how he was operating as the Reem operated. They weren't the same. So I didn't see that um, parallel, but the fans didn't uh, see that quite as the same. <laughs> That's the guy. They just it's like, look, that, Vancouver's only so big. Uh, well, uh, yeah. And I, I don't think it was that as much as they liked, they thought it would be okay that, you know, it was a, different show and that people would be fine with it. Yeah. But I think they found themselves in two situations. One was uh, having me as her husband, which is what it was originally. Ah, I was okay. husband. In the first episode, that was me as the husband. That's what I was told. That wow. was and then it became a boyfriend. Even after she came home, the next one became, it, I found out later, oh, you're the boyfriend and you're dumping her. <laughs> and oh. that was the last episode I did was when she comes back for real. Yeah. And I say, well, you've been gone for a long time. I met somebody else. And I've so grown I, a lot of hair. 
Yeah. <laughs> I had been filming something at that time and I couldn't cut it anyway. So, uh, so they just let it be. It didn't matter. It showed exactly. That, showed that time had passed. And we found uh, out that he had his own life. He had patience. He had research. You know, you can't just, exactly. you can't necessarily just sit around and wait for someone. I don't care who yeah. you are. So it's yeah. come home. Yeah. sooner or later you move on. Uh, well, especially when she just sort of took off. Right. Without even a goodbye. So, um, Anyway, I think they found themselves in a situation where, A, the fan base was not that keen on it. The, the, there had been a, a, a small but a vociferous a vocal group who were saying, he's the same guy, what's going on? And then they realized that it also hampered Elizabeth Weir's life. If she's going to be have any love interest, she's cheating on her husband or her boyfriend back on her, et cetera, et cetera. So I think there were a lot of things. So what are they going to do? Take me with her? And there was nothing, there was nothing for my character to do. It wasn't, and they weren't about to bring on another series regular just because, mm-hmm. right. Or so uh, they killed, they had me dump her. And then in an episode that never, this part never aired. I, I was only told about it um, is that she's reading the newspaper and sees my picture. And it says I died in a car crash. The uh, there is an episode in I believe season three called The Real World, and in the real world she is uh, hallucinating with none other than Alan Ruck, and he says that uh, she, oh, yeah, she her mother her mother as well yes that's correct and she fabricated the illusion of Atlantis and the Pegasus Galaxy to get over the fact that he had died in a crash so technically Simon's still alive. <laughs> so you know what you could be the next doctor in sg4 or whatever it's going to be yeah, and it would still and be perfectly consistent and technically uh so is narim yeah what ah yes okay <laughs> so we're gonna go there now thank you for thank you for bringing that out to me so in episode one of uh dial the gate i teased that you had told me something uh, during one of our previous conversations that was very um, uh, interesting in terms of a direction that the show may have gone. The last yeah. time that we see him, he's standing in front of an exploding city. And yeah. we hear a message sent to Earth that, you know, they're, the, the Tolan are leaving the, the system and ships and they're being knocked out of the sky. Right. I just want and you to know that dot, dot, sh- dot. And then it, exactly. And then you revealed that there was more that had been planned. Can you please share that with everyone? Well, at least in um, terms of what you knew. Well, I, I went to the uh, 100th episode party and uh, it was fun. There was, they, they invited people that had been involved with the show to the 100th episode party. It was a big deal. We all got, little packages, a little bag with a small Stargate in it with the pictures of the cast. We got um, oh, a, a bunch of little prezzies that were all, oh, a, a copy of the 100th episode, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So I thought, oh, gee, someday I'll auction this off with my script from the episode and make hundreds. But it, <laughs> <laughs> um, But anyway, we're sitting there talking and the producers came up and we're saying, oh, by the way, just so you know, we're um, thinking of having Narim come back as a Goa'uld. And I went, 
what a great arc. I would absolutely love to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm already working on my flange. Yeah. <laughs> so I went, oh, this would be something. I said, that would be tremendous. And But it never happened. So they just never got around to it. They decided not to do it. But, uh, and I believe I heard from you that in one of the books or the cartoons or the story they actually did, it was the Pacna they put in me? It was Chloral. Oh, Chloral. Fittingly enough. Yeah. Oh, of course. Yeah. Right. Nareem, yeah, yeah. Uh, Chlorel had uh, had a bone to pick with the Tolan, and he picked Nareem, knowing that that Earth, uh, that he was the closest to Earth. So right. that actually makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So. No, I would have loved to. Have, I would have loved to have had the cat walk through the gate. <laughs> I walk through the gate, and Amanda goes Nareem, and I go Amanda. <laughs> <laughs> Samantha. <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> So it would have been great fun, but uh, it never happened. But I thought that would have been because the thing about that character was in the first episode, I decided to make him very gentle, very, I call him milk toast. You know, he really was a milk toast and nonviolent and completely just honorable and, and full of integrity and, and, and such a um, antithesis of the macho man. Mm-hmm. And then the second episode did I, I, uh, <laughs> I say, well, basically, I was the butler. <laughs> Come this way. Come this way. <laughs> Just because uh, it was the trial, not the trial. Triad. Uh, yeah, I know. Uh, <laughs> no, um, my, Michael Shanks goes um, the trial. Tri- <laughs> so it's kind of like a trial. I'm unfamiliar with the term. This is like a tri-ol. Anyway, uh, that became my name for triad after that. Uh, But um, that whole um, episode was, it didn't, my character didn't really grow at all. There was no, you know, there was, uh, they'd set it up and we move forward from there. Uh, But in the last episode, Mm. uh, I'd been filming for about three days, I think. And the producers we were sitting there talking. I believe it was Michael Greenberg. Michael mm-hmm. said, well, you know, we were a little worried, Carwin, um, because this is the largest guest star we've ever written up to this point. And you kind of drive this episode along in many places because most of the time the guest stars show and the team is there i was involved in a lot of scenes in it and they said and you kind of drive this engine a bit and we were a little concerned but he's such a milk toast it's just going to be what's going to happen and of course what happened for him at the point i i understood that as an actor that i can't do that i had to step up and move forward and make it more dynamic but after three days they said they had the courage to say to me then he said well but we should have known you're doing just keep doing what you're doing we're really happy Absolutely. So, He's completely so blindsided was, throughout this episode. And even O'Neill says, would you get your head out of your ass? Yes. <laughs> yes. Because I can't believe we've, we're so honorable. It's against everything of our culture to do this piece of this betrayal. This, this, uh, it's so traitorous. Uh, you can't even conceive of it. It's not even in our language. This type of thing could exist. Since we had that issue with killing off other people because we gave them technology, we had been really, really careful about stuff like this. So anyway, that was, um, for me, it was um, the nice arc for the character at this point. But to take that one actor's step would have been astounding, to take him all the way to uh, the antithesis of who he was in the first episode. You know, having Chlorella especially inside of him would have been, holy cow. 
So I, I, I regret that that never happened because it would have been a complete arc. I love those arcs. There's a movie called uh, Les Enfants du Paradis by Marcel Cam. It's a French uh, movie made during the occupation in the, in the Second World War. Uh, and um, it's a story where the characters at the beginning, Baptiste and Florence, uh, Gérard and somebody else, those characters start off as one way. And within the arc of the show, almost all of them except for two, become the antithesis of the character at the beginning of the show. Tremendous character arcs. It's one of the best movies I've ever seen. So I recommend it to anybody. Uh, Children of Paradise is the English version. Children of Paradise. War does that to people. Yeah. So, um, well, this is what, that movie was, I could go on about that movie. It was filmed during the occupation secretly. They did it. The Germans wouldn't be allowed to do this. How they got away with this, I have no idea. They shot this film while Germany occupied France. And for me, the movie is Garance, who is the main character. She's the female lead, one of the leads. She is France. And that's what's happening around them is, uh, it's a great story on its own, but there's so much symbolism about what's happening to France and how the people are changing to deal with the occupation and what's happened to them. Anyway, blah, 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 blah. No, no, I think that's valid. So yeah. the other the other thing about Nareem um, that always uh, stands out to people, especially with that character, not only is he the one that is... I mean, in, to, to borrow from what you're saying, he is, he is, Tol, he is Tolana. Um, the other part of that is he's still damned arrogant, just like all of them. This cannot be happening. Our technology is impenetrable. We are, we are technologically better than all of you put together. And it blindsides him when he realizes that the Curia, their government has been lying to them and all the chips are down and everything that he has stood for is gone. So, you know what? Why not take one of our weapons and point it at a building and blow it up, knowing that everything inside of it is exactly what we do not stand for. Weapons of mass destruction. Yeah. Yeah. What an arc. I, yeah, exactly. I really, I, and I was very happy with that ending. That, you know, he does, he could have escaped, but he said, well, I, I'm the one who did this. So I pushed the button. People to at least stay and die with them or whatever. It's going to happen, but I'm not about to abandon them. So, you know, uh, that's, uh, it was a very satisfying ending for that character, I felt. Absolutely. There was, there was something uh, very funny I, I saw just actually about a month ago. I saw something online that said, uh, is Nareem a romantic character or a creepy stalker? <laughs> 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 and I started thinking about, and I went, there, there's definitely a case to be made. For the creepy stalker. Nareem, is that my voice? If you... <laughs> I was hoping you wouldn't notice. That well, what'd a... you think? <laughs> creepy. Uh... <laughs> so, uh, I, and some people weighed in saying, yeah, creepy stalker. And some people weighed in, you know, the romantic guy. But um, there is a fair amount of evidence to say, yeah, I could, I could make a case for him to being the creepy stalker. Yeah, who knows what kind of technology the Tolan didn't have. There's probably a holographic Sam, you know, waiting off in the wings somewhere that he oh, he hopes she wouldn't notice either. Jeez. Well, I mean, you, you know, when, when when you fall in love with a with a technologically and, and developmentally inferior species, you know, you can get away with pretty much anything. <laughs> Jeez.
let's, let's not go with our history there. That's I know I'm, I'm playing it more light than that, but yes, absolutely. You're right. <laughs> um, I have some fan questions, but, and then I want to come back around to your art. Claire Burr, the Tolan emotional imprint device oh, from the first episode, sharing what he feels about her to, uh, uh, to Sam, uh, seems like such a wonderful idea. I'm interested to hear your thoughts on it. It was used in the show and uh, how you think such a, a device uh, would affect us in real life. It was used once and that was it. Yes. In fact, you had to remind me because I kind of forgot. I did too. It. Let's just say, you know. There's a person that you dislike. Okay, here's how much I dislike you. Here you go. Now you know how I feel. <laughs> I could go in any way. Ouch. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, you know. I I I never really. This is just off the cuff now because I never really considered it at the time. It was just again that first episode. I was because of um, uh, being caught with one day to prepare. Mm, um, I was a bit of catch up. I didn't have as much time to think about each one of those moments. Right. We were, uh, just literally learning the lines, getting it down and running on instinct somewhat. And then a man and I would work on it. Um, uh, at the time I thought, well, that's just, it, I thought it was a really touching moment because it really, you could see how it affected Sam, mm -hmm. right. When that happened, but in the real world, if you could actually do that, I can only assume, well, you, you pointed out, uh, I don't like you and here's how much. Right. But, but on some level, if you, the biggest problem we run into, and if you look at what's happening in America and in Canada right now, with people who are non-believers of the COVID virus and people who say it's real, the people who are denying what it is and the angst and the, the that polarization that's happening because of this pandemic, is that if we were allowed to show them how we really felt, it might make us more empathetic towards mm. the other people. Instead of demonizing them, mm. it makes them real, right? The reason why people lash out is because they feel voiceless and powerless, and they're scared, and they don't know quite what to do. And the bodyguard for fear and insecurity is anger, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. That's what comes out to protect us. So we see people lashing out on both sides, the left and the right, the mm -hmm. extreme left, the extreme right. It resorts in violence. And if you have the ability to actually let someone know how you really feel, we would find, I believe, I'd, no, I'd like to believe. Yeah. We would find commonality. Yeah, because it would be weaponized as well. People would use it for, I mean, just like we've used social media, you know. Yes. I, I would argue that social media has, has been, unfortunately, now over the past of time, a, a, a net detriment to humanity. It is obviously yeah. not elevated us like we thought it would. Um, there's also that argument that, you know, because, and a lot of, a lot of, I've seen a lot of people do this because I am more passionate or emotional about this than you are. I must be correct. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's, that's, that's false, but to be able to share what you really feel with someone else only to incre increase uh, the amount of empathy that you have from one person to another and to truly understand them. And it, we don't do that because we don't talk to one another anymore. And what we have on earth right now is, is conversing. We have, we have a, we have a conversation problem. 
And, you know, we may not have Tolan Tech to solve a lot of our issues, but at this point, I'm not sure. I, I would I would probably stand with the Curie on this. I don't think it would be do. I don't think it would do much, much good. I don't think it may do more harm than good. It didn't help the Tolans much either. No. <laughs> yeah, that's right. At the end of it. Uh, okay. So everyone's been asking this in the forum. All right. Is Garwin's cat named Schrodinger? Is it just one cat? Yeah, just one cat. I'm not going to tell you. Really? That's a mystery. <laughs> you don't share the cat's name? No. Well, they don't come to you with your when you call them by their name anyway. So <laughs> you know it, and I know it. Unless it's one of those one of those uh, out of one out of ten cats that behaves like a dog. So <laughs> uh, let's see here. For David and Garwin, both. Kevin wants to know, when was the last time you laughed so hard that you cried? Boy, it hasn't been this year, I don't think. Um, hmm. Garwin, are you there? Yeah. Okay, I lost you. I, it's, oh, okay. there's, a, there's a real bad Wi-Fi connection in this episode. Okay. Sorry about that. I can't remember the last time I laughed so hard that I cried. A, f- a friend told me something, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. Isn't that sad? It certainly hasn't been in the last year, that's for sure. It's been a, this has been a year. Yeah. Thanks, Kevin. We both feel like crap now. (laughs) Jeez. Terry, Terry, please, God, save us. Garwin, do you still have your pilot's license? Yes, I haven't flown for years now, though. Um, It's, I ended up um, founding, uh, being one of the founding members of a film school at Langara College. So I became a professor for 15 years and I became head of the school for the last four or five years I was there. And I left two years ago, uh, I guess, or maybe it's three years ago now, uh, two and a half or something. And um, it took over my life. Um, mm-hmm. It was uh, to start a school from the ground up and make it successful. It demanded a, a lot of time. There was a lot of uh, work to be done. So um uh, my art, my music, I uh, stopped reading books. I was just focused on this school. We made 24 short films every eight months. And, uh, oh my all, God. They, yeah. And they were all festival ready. We'd have 12 directors. So for the first four months, we would shoot 12 short films that were three to five minutes long. And then in the summer term, we would do uh, 10 minute movies. And to do 12 10 minute movies is like two features. Because And you're learning, you're mentoring as you go. This is all about mentoring. We had a program where the actors, the directors, and the writers would all work together. We had three streams. They all had their own classes. Then they had the classes they did together. So for those years, everything went away. And then when I left, because I'd had enough, I was burning out. It was mm-hmm. exhausting. And I missed my life. Mm-hmm. I was still, And I was acting still. I was still making movies and TV shows while I was doing this. So it was extremely intense for... A lot, many years. And since I stopped, I've gone back to reading and I've gone back to playing guitar and teaching myself French and whatever. I'm starting to move back in and I'm getting the itch at this point. I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to do about whether I'll start sculpting again. Uh, what's next? I was planning to move into bronze. I wanted to start making these pieces in oh, bronze. Wow. So that's the next level that I want to go to. And that means 
building a new studio that's going to include metalwork. So those types of things, you know, I, I think I might start with Lost Wax and then move forward from there. I, I'm not really sure yet, but um, I know that I'm starting to get the itch. It took me a full year to recover from the exhaustion, literally. It was like almost 12 months before I kind of came out of the fog of working so intensely. Uh, but I'm enjoying being back in my life uh, as it used to be before I took on that task. You you have two kids? No. Well, uh, uh, I, yeah, I have a daughter and I have a stepson. So. Okay. Are they artistic? Um, yes, definitely. Okay. How has it been? But I'm not going to... I'm not going to talk about my family too much. Oh, okay, sure. I don't mean to be unkind, but the, this is my, I choose to be out here in the world. Okay, absolutely. But I, don't, I don't talk about my family. Oh, understood. I apologize. It's just, no, um, no, there's nothing to apologize for. I just, that, it's just me. That That's a whole, that, that's just one of the things I keep private. Okay, then let me, in, in that context though, as a teacher, um, with, with, uh, what I was, what I was wanting to get to was, was, uh, passing on knowledge to, uh, next generations. Uh, have you, have you had an opportunity, uh, to really watch, uh, people that you care about grow into artists in their own right? Well, I'll say this much. Uh, I homeschooled Okay. for the whole time my, uh, daughter grew up, I homeschooled her. So. And the reason was, is I thought schooling was a waste of time for them, basically. 30 people in a classroom go to the middle, medium, you know, you just can only go to the middle. You, the people at the top and the bottom get kind of shoved aside and mm. just juggernaut move on. And I want that to be the way she learned, so I didn't do that. <laughs> So yes, I've watched very carefully, you know, and that's one of the reasons why I think I still, to this day, you know, I'm an old man and I'm still learning. I push mm-hmm. myself to learn all the time because it keeps me awake, alive, and uh, excited about tomorrow. Absolutely. Uh, uh, Romaine uh, wants to know, uh, do you have any specific memories of, of working with Rick? You know what? Uh, yeah, actually one that kind of summed it up in the last episode we're crouched down and we were rehearsing the scene where he says, uh, you know, it's, it's, I can't remember what it was about finding me or whatever. And he goes, Oh, don't worry. I'll, you'll be the one in gray. <laughs> <laughs> and I laughed. Right. And we on the take. Again. Oh, in the rehearsal. In the rehearsal. Okay. And I laughed again. I kind of laughed. And, and when the third rehearsal, I laughed again and he goes, I'm going to say that on the day. And I said, and I'm going to laugh. <laughs> And he goes, oh, okay. So when he says it on screen, I just kind of, I, I do a little chuckle and I shake my head and then look back up because, you know, he's not without humor. No. Right. Uh, but that was what I always found that Rick brought to the scenes was that he always, the lines on the show sometimes were made up by him. Uh, you know, he would just ad lib them and then they would become part of the show. But I always found his sense of humor funny i I, he, I found him humorous so that was for me the joy of that was he was always bringing something that made me and i have a really warped sense of humor and i think he did too because <laughs> stuff would be come from this place he's always a little off over here he'd make down some comment and i always remember even when i watched the shows he would make me chuckle <laughs> so that was one of my favorite moments was i'm gonna do that on the day yeah me too <laughs> okay 
Yeah, he he was known for um, throwing things at uh, his uh, fellow talent and saying, how are you going to respond to that, huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he, would keep, he would keep you on your toes, there's no doubt. Did you? And yeah, Tobin go ahead. Bell, well, Tobin, Tobin Bell had a little bit of a, he found that a little difficult, I think. <laughs> okay. Rick, Rick would say something that wasn't in the script and Tobin would kind of get... <laughs> <laughs> blindsided yeah he would just kind of go uh <laughs> well that was perfect though because he was playing such a stuffy dude oh. you know and it would be like yeah yeah so rick is like the 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 example of humanity absolutely unhinged you know and he gets he gets to be crazy while everyone around him is kind of like yeah um he's our leader but you know yeah just kind of because <laughs> so. Uh, did the uh, by by Enigma and and some of the the uh, perhaps even Atlantis? Did you have um, uh, how, how willing were they in incorporating any notes that you had while you were while you were developing uh, the episodes, or did you just come and do your lines and and that's it? Well, no, we because most again my scenes with Amanda. She was mm-hmm. always you know working with the writers the, who were on set. The producer writers were on set. And she would sit down and we would talk about what their intent was. What were you intending? And, and what if this, and sometimes it would be rewritten right there the, to accommodate Amanda's ideas and things that were going on. As a guest star, I, I never feel like, you know, that you're going to step in and say, this is the way I think it should be done. Of course. Uh, you know, but you would make suggestions and things would change or there'd be, is, is it okay if I go this way or that way? Or, and the directors would also have, you know, uh, I loved working with Bill Garrity. Um, in the episode where um, I'm taking them all into the, I guess it was the last one, I guess. Yeah, it was the last one. I'm walking into the uh, main uh, room where the, the, they all try to arrest us. And we're sneaking through the hallways, right, to get there. And when we shot it first, I just walked in and, you know, just walked down the hall and went in the doorway. And Bill Garrity, this is what I love about good directors. He said, Garwin, is there anybody around? I said, what do you mean? He says, well, are there any guards? Are there people around? Uh, okay, Bill, I get it. What he wanted was some suspense. I, I, he said, you know, you're walking down the hallway like John Wayne here, right? You know, this, <laughs> and I said, well, yeah, I, I feel this is my home. I own the place, so I'm going to own it. But he said, you are sneaking in to do... Deeds. So, uh, you know, so then I come to the corner and I would look and then make the move. So he didn't tell me to do this. He let mm-hmm. me discover it by asking a question, mm-hmm. which when I direct, that's how I do. When I work with actors, when I direct, when I directed my feature and when I worked on my shorts, I would always have my actors, you know, I would be giving them the questions to help them discover where I want them to go as opposed to me just telling them. Because if you tell an actor what to do, the actor will do it, but maybe not the character. If you allow the actor to use the character to discover the note that you are looking for, then they own it and they can move forward because it's been their, their discovery. Don't the best teachers, I don't, I don't care what profession you're in, point yeah. us in the direction of doors rather than opening the doors for us. Yes, because if you don't discover it yourself, you'll never own it. You'll just do it. Right, exactly. And, and maybe pushed yeah. at some point into doing it for the wrong reason. Yeah. So. so 
that was kind of how we worked with the script itself and the director would bring notes and the other actors and sometimes the writers on set when they were saying what if what if so that's you know it's one of the reasons why and again amanda was always looking for the better way mm. and that was a really great experience because like i say most of my scenes were with hers and the consummate professional uh, Remain wanted to add, uh, there is another website now dedicated to Don S. Davis's work where you can view and purchase prints at, it looks like, donsdavisart.ca. So thank oh, you so for correcting Canadian. me. So it's a Canadian site. It is, yes, absolutely. The, the .com is gone and it's now .ca. So I'll, I'll post a link uh, in the episode once we're done. So. Excellent. Uh, yeah, what was it called again, Don Davis? donsdavisart.ca. Okay, that I can remember. Great. <laughs> absolutely. You have given me a wonderful gift that I get to unwrap in front of everyone who has tuned in. So one of the things that you told us about in a GateWorld interview eons ago uh, was uh, your, your gothic mask work. And I had always been like picturing them in my head and wondering what they looked like. And I have some uh, that you've sent me here that we're going to share with everyone. And one of the ones that really blew me away um, that you uh, was one of the first that you, that you shared with me was a mask called Rebirth. And I, I wish you had it in front of you here because I'm now showing an image of it. It's a, it looks like a transfer from uh, one being like that's cracked open to another. Um, can you please tell us about how you really got into this, uh, this particular medium and um, what it means to you to be able to express it and about uh, rebirth specifically? How I got into it, again, is almost everything that I ended up doing art-wise. I just kind of fall into it. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. 9-11 uh, happened. And, you know, all of the horrible things that went with that. But the, the long-term effects in Canada, where I was working at the time, um, was that the business just stopped. Um, companies didn't go anywhere. They only shot in America. They stopped traveling because of the all the risks that were involved mm. and trying to figure out how to deal with the first kind of attack on American soil. And I understand that completely. Well, what happened was that I went from doing 12 to 16 shows a year to doing four. So I had a fair amount of time on my hands. And uh, um, that's when the art bug always hits me. Uh, <laughs> the beauty of there's a, a Ted talk. This woman talks about the value of boredom. And she talks about that getting bored is what fuels creativity and fuels many of our epiphanies and move forwards in ourself. I, I believe that when you get depressed, it's a time for introspection. That's why it's there. So you stay there and be introspective until you can find a key out of it. Mm. So the same thing with boredom, you're bored and then it goes, ah, I want to try something. Right. So a friend of mine, uh, on the Sunshine Coast where I lived at the time was a potter and I'd, uh, I had uh, made most of my acting breakthroughs in mask class doing uh, Commedia dell'arte, doing neutral masks, doing character masks and Wendy Gorling was my instructor and she's brilliant she's unparalleled in her ability and as a mask instructor and as a person now with masks you're, you're wearing them and you're Correct. doing a performance. These are comedian. These are comedian. Dell'arte masks. Okay. 
it's mass that are, it's called mask work and you, you know it's a protocol around it when you are working with character mask when you finish you turn away from the people who are watching take the mask off when you're rehearsing and then so you don't break character in front of them there's all these protocols that go with that performance and I've always felt really powerful under mask. Some people are intimidated by it and get all upset and other people feel freed. And the key to me, I'd been having difficulties. I went to acting school having seen one play in my entire life. I'm just a complete newbie. And the fact that Anthony Holland, who was running studio 58, which is the one of Canada's premier theater schools, the fact that he let me in after me doing an audition that I made every mistake you can make. I literally made every mistake you can make. I had no idea what acting was. And he let me in because I asked him later, why did you let me into the school knowing what I now know about what I showed you? And he goes, well, I saw a spark. And he said, you were only 25 at the time. I'd already been flying. I had my pilot's license. I was working on my commercial pilot's license. He let me in. And uh, as a result of being let in, uh, it changed my entire life. I mean, there's no doubt. But he said there was a spark. And then you were old enough to know better. If you didn't like it, you'd leave. And if we didn't like it, we'd kick you out. So it wasn't a huge risk, but I just thought I saw something. So I owe that man. He became a mentor of mine over the years. Uh, he was acting until he was 97 years old. Oh, my he was, gosh. He was on stage two weeks before he passed away. Wow. Um, he was astounding. Uh, wow. Anyway, a great mentor for me. But... Um, the result of that was is that um, I in this class, the mask work allowed me to free myself up. And I discovered under masks, I went, what is it about my mask performances that are better than my performances not under mask? And I realized that, wait a minute, my other characters are just masks. And then, of course, in my life, I went, yes, don't we all? I'm wearing the That's sun right. mask now. I'm wearing the boyfriend mask now. I'm wearing the whatever mask now and it, it was one of those well that's what i love about acting in theater school was it was intense therapy and the <laughs> parallels of life and acting and the lessons for acting just resonated so i learned that under mask so mask had always been important to me so i decided to that i wanted to make some masks and i said do you have some clay that i could mess around with because actually i've got a, a box of old raku clay over there it's almost too dry. Go ahead. Now, if he pointed me towards any other type of clay other than raku clay, I wouldn't have continued because I was making masks without knowing really, I didn't go take any classes. I just, I was making masks in a vacuum. And there are rules when you're making raku as you suppose as, as uniform as possible in thickness so that when you fire it, there's a whole series of firings that can make them blow up if they're uneven in thickness or if you have thick against thin and it goes on and on but regardless if you picked any other clay which was less forgiving in the kiln yeah. i probably would have gave up because they all would have blown up on me <clears throat> but because raku clay is very thermically forgiving they survived so my first pieces made it through and i glazed them and fired them in in the raku kilns and i went wow and i remember alan walking by me when i was making this is my potter friend i was doing it at his studio I was making my first mask and as he's doing it, he goes, Oh, you've done this before. I said, no, not really. <laughs> but I began to realize something is that if I can put emotion and life into a performance, into a character, into this mask, 
Mm-hmm. And get a mask physically. Maybe I could do the same, right? But that was me thinking, you know, but I just thought, you never know. But something, I was able to figure it out, right? And uh, so I, that's how I started. And within a very short period of time, I was, I just got involved. I had nothing else going on acting wise, very little. So I just threw myself into this and I was enjoying the curve of learning. And the next thing I know, I had 60 of these things on the, and I had built a log house. As you mentioned, I built my own house. I built a log house and five acres of woods up on the Sunshine Coast. Well, I was lucky to have wood walls everywhere because I get hands <laughs> right everywhere. Uh, so I had about 60 of them and Alan said to me, he goes, why don't you sell these? And I said, oh, no one's going to buy these. They're very gothic and weird. And I don't think anybody's going to be interested. And he said, well, there's a fair, a crafts fair on the Sunshine Coast that he would go and sell his pottery in. Fifty bucks to get an application to go there. You never know. And I said, oh, he goes, come on, it'd be fun. We'll set up a booth nearby and have a weekend of meeting people and stuff. And I went, okay, fine. So I did it. And I sold $1,500 worth of masks the first Whoa. weekend. Oh, man. Uh, I, I made that. I sent you the photographs of, of yes. what I call my Janus piece. It's a two-faced piece. The Janus God is the two faces on the Roman doorways facing each other way. And it's two pictures. They are actually back-to-back, the Janus 1 and 2 that I sent. Uh, let me see here. So I, put, I, I, I put them out of order. It doesn't matter. Either. No, go ahead. Well, anyway, this piece was what I consider one of my real art pieces. Like it was, it was dark and very, very, um, um, one of the Janices has a piece of leather over their eyes. The other one on the other side has it over their mouth. So it was about being stymied with blind, leaving the blind, not being able to speak, etc. So it was a dark piece. And someone walked by and they stopped and they looked at it and said, oh, and I put a price tag of like 550 bucks on it because I wasn't going to sell it, right? And I, no one was going to buy it for that because, you know, it's never going to sell. And these two people just looked at it and said, I never thought I'd see something like this at a crafts fair. <laughs> and they were a gallery owner in Calgary, Alberta, and they bought it because they wanted to sell it in their gallery. And uh... so that was when I went, oh, wow, that's interesting. And then I got an invitation from the local ceramic guild that was doing a show at a gallery. They just sent me a letter saying, would you be interested in showing some of your pieces at the ne- our next show? And I went, sure, why not? Yeah. I didn't really think about it until I got there and went to the show and I met the other artists and every single one of them had been doing it for 15 or 20 years. And I went, well, maybe there is something here. Maybe I've tapped into something. Maybe, and it's, I think it's partly the performance archetypes um, that get exposed in these pieces. So Rebirth itself was, when I make pieces, I don't start out with an idea in most cases. The armor piece, the Roman armor piece that I made, the, the Magnus, Yep. Um, that piece, I knew I was going to make an armor piece, obviously but I didn't know what he was going to look like or how it was going to turn out. And I ended up with the the helmet separate on a post, yep. you know, from the, the thing. And so all these come as I go. So what I do is I shape some clay, do an underbody. And then when I'm pleased with that, I literally take a plaster cast of a, a shapeless face that I made from one of my daughter's plaster 
cast for toys and I made a bunch of them and I'd stick it on the shape that I'd done and then would build on top of that with my actual clay that's going to make the mask. And then I just let my hands and my, I just shut off my brain, get out of my way and just start shaping. And then whatever comes and I let that instinct just go. So whatever happens with this piece, I knew I wanted two faces. That's all I knew. I had no idea what was going to be. And as it came through, I began to start shaping and doing these things. And that iron bar going through the one face. Are we talking about rebirth? Yes. Okay. We're back to rebirth. Got it. Okay. (laughs) I've got it here. I went on a segue with Magnus (laughs) because that was a piece that I had determined what I was going to do. Back at rebirth, it was just coming. Uh, There was no plan. So what happens is, is the story develops as the piece unfolds. Do you know what I mean? It's so cool, man. You spend so much time on it as you're working and doing it, the things start coming. And then you just build on that instinct and sometimes the meaning of the piece only comes when it's finished what it meant to me what what is being spoken out of my need to speak and for me i've had a number of rebirths and almost all of them have come out of turmoil and damage to me what i considered to be damage to me at the time and what came out of it was something completely different and as you can see it's an it's the opposite in coloring. Yeah. White with black hair, black face with white hair. Yeah. It's the transformation. That's almost what that piece was called. And it's a violent act as well. You it can is, see it's it slamming is. right through her face. There is damage. And our lives are full of joy and sorrow, pain and bliss. And most of my epiphanies have come out of pain and sorrow. The growth out of those moments. And that's what we have to remember so we don't despair. Mm. Is that out of these things comes something better. If you involve yourself, if you don't give up, if you continue to strive to be aware of what's happening, look for the messages, try to find the way out of turmoil. What is it teaching me and how quickly can I get it out of my life? You can only get it out of your life once you learn the lesson. And if you don't learn the lesson, it will repeat over and over and over again. And you will continue to damage yourself. And we have a tendency in our society to band-aid through either media going like the, that, that story about the boredom. Mm-hmm. We don't allow ourselves to get bored anymore because we go immediately to the lights and bells and whistles of our phone to the computer, to Facebook. No, we can't, fa- we can't face it. That would be too painful. Right. You know? and, we can't, and we can't that, allow that silence and stillness. And we want to shy away from that. And that's where the growth happens is in those moments when you are hurt. And, and not always. Sometimes epiphanies come out of joy. But most of mine have come out of sorrow and pain and, and dysfunction. And I look at that go, okay, why is this in my life? What am I supposed to be learning? And how do I get out of it as soon as I possibly can? And sometimes it takes a long time. Sometimes it happens. I've had it happen instantly. What is this? And then go, oh, (laughs) those are amazing moments. Right upside the head. (laughs) Might as well be physical hit. (laughs) Yes. You want want to, um, that's the search of my life is to be aware, to fight for awareness so that I can monitor and watch what's going on in my life to look for the signs, to step out of the way of the truck before it hits me if I can. And if I don't, 
minimize the damage when I get hit. <laughs> it's interesting that you bring up this story because um, two years ago when we were first uh, discussing your art, I believe it was Words Unspoken. Yes. This story has stuck with me. I think about it all the time. Will you please tell this story? It's one of those like great reversals that it's like, oh, and then, oh, and it's wow. You know, the. For me, the, the, what's interesting about, like you said, those moments that happen in your life. uh, I didn't really think about whether, what my art was. I just did it because it pleased me. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm very selfish and very self-centered. I decided to only sell, I had a couple of galleries uh, carry my pieces at times. And then they would, when they sold and I wasn't there, I felt like I missed out because I didn't see what the person had experienced when they saw the piece and why they bought it. So I made a decision to just sell at shows. There's, you know, crafts fairs, literally, wherever I could be, where people were looking to buy things. I did, I, I only did maybe 10 shows total. And I, if I may insert here, because I want people to understand just how just how important this uh, uh, or sacred, I should say this this particular uh, this particular medium is for you. You told me that this is the one um, ar- artistic area, or perhaps the most, where you do not allow yourself to compromise. Where this is going to be exactly the way I want it, because I have complete control over it, and this is it's it's it will be this, or it's not going to be at all. I mean, uh, um, as an actor, I feel I've compromised at times. I had a mortgage and a family to raise and bills to pay. And so I would take jobs that I wouldn't necessarily want to take, but would make the best out of it. And I'd call those my ditch digging jobs, right? And I'd still learn something. I still have lots of fun working with the people. Of course. It wasn't a hardship. Let's put it that way. I wasn't actually digging a ditch. Uh, it's certainly, you know, come on, actors complaining about working hard. <laughs> <laughs> That's never happened. Talk to the crews. They're working yeah. hard. Yeah. Like, out a trailer, have a little time off, have a nap. <laughs> you know, I mean, come on. Right. Uh, uh, anyway, regardless, <laughs> that type of thing. I uh, can never complain about that. <clears throat> but um, <clears throat> excuse me, I decided that I would take whatever work was coming to me because I decided to live in Canada, to raise a family in Canada. I did not want to do it in the United States because it wasn't my home country. I wanted to go home. So I went, okay, then I'll have to, whatever's here was what I'll have to do. I right. made a choice. The choice was I want family more than my career, so I'm going to do it here because I was in LA for five years. And at that time, I worked a lot in Canada. I worked in the States and I decided to come home to have a family for that reason. So, Regardless, um, the setup is you. I'm getting kind of lost here, but uh, <laughs> but basically, uh, what I wanted to do with that um, was to sell only to the people that I wanted to sell to. I remember one of my favorite pieces. Uh, it was a large piece called Epiphany, and it's a. I think I I sent it to you. It was a a piece where it was a warrior woman with a broken sword um, uh, and her legs are growing into roots on the bottom of the piece. It's about five feet tall, four and a half feet tall. And it's um, one of my largest pieces. And I had a uh, woman come looking at the piece and just saying, Oh, it's a very interesting piece. And she goes, you know, I have, my carpets are kind of a beige. And she started describing the color scheme of her room. And whether she thought they would fit in there. And I sort of just went, nah, not at all. I, I, 
the piece, the piece wasn't speaking to her on any level, except she thought it would might fit in with her decor. Oh God. So I just, well, it's, it's just, that's okay. It was important to her, not to me. And so I said, no, 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 it wouldn't at all. I I don't think, and I wouldn't have sold her the piece for no matter what she offered for it. So that's a precursor to this story. I don't make any compromises. People say, Oh, you should sell these online. I said, no, Uh, the joy of me selling this piece is the people that see the piece when it speaks to them. Uh, 90% of the people that would be in these markets would look into my booth and just walk by. There'd be no recognition. It was just a blank look. This has no, it doesn't speak to them on any level. It doesn't interest them on any level. 10% of the people that went by would stop and look. And some of them go, ooh, these are the ugliest thing I've ever seen. They would go, oh, these are horrible. And they'd leave, right? At least you got a reaction. Uh, well, this is, for me, that was as much praise as anything. Yeah, what is art if not to invoke a response? Exactly. So, uh, and then about 3% just go, <gasps> and something, and they, they just go, oh my God. And then they would start telling me their life story. <clears throat> Excuse me. You're good. Because the one piece that they ended up buying spoke to them somehow and made them, it evoked a, a huge response. And I would have, I had a, a German woman come into the booth one time and I watched her shaking her head and shaking her head and looking at the pieces. And, and I thought, Oh, she doesn't like them because it was negative shake, shake. And she walked over and said, I have a large collection of masks and these are the most interesting thing. They are just, I've never seen anything like them. I think they're amazing. She goes, they are so evocative. And she goes, I have to tell my husband, I'm going to bring him. So she walks off and comes back with her husband. She goes, look, what do you think? And he goes, these are the most effing ugly things I've ever seen in my entire effing life. And he turned around and stormed out of the booth. <laughs> For me, that was like, he was eviscerated that he just went, Oh, he was shaken by them. And some people I've had people walk into the booth where they walk in and they haven't really seen what it is. And they look up and go, Oh, and they literally turn and run out of the booth that's to me, they're speaking to something that's as much as an applause to the people that buy them, but I want to be with them. They get bought. Now we finally get to the story about words unspoken. (laughs) It's a whole precursor. Anyway, the, the, um, the piece is um, a very, very fragile feminine face, very, a very fine featured nose. Um, I made Cupid's bows lips that were very pronounced and I put a, a beautiful blue, raku blue shawl around her face that was kind of like a shawl scarf. Mm-hmm. And then over the face, I made a piece of clay that looked like um, a burlap, canvas burlap growing up onto the face. And it was all frayed here on the cheek, and here it was lower. And just over the, li- the lips were covered. But there was one spot where my little finger, would it was the size of my little finger, that was not completed sealed up yet so it was open and it was one of my favorite pieces and funny enough i never got a photograph of it um yeah the one i'm it, displaying is not I, it folks it was a later piece i put it up on the wall i hadn't had it and it sold before i could get a photograph of it but so this guy walks in with his wife and he's looking at the pieces and he's walking around and then he stops and looks at words unspoken and says to his wife and i i'm always eavesdropping his wife comes over and he goes, honey, honey, look at this. What do you think? He goes, wow, it's an interesting piece. He goes, I was thinking of it for the office. And I went, 
the office, right? Okay. It's not something I would think of. No. So it, they looked around a bit more. They back I said, sure, I guess, can you tell me about this piece? And he pointed to words unspoken. And I said, I don't know what you mean. What, what you, he goes, well, what's it about? And I said, well, I try not to put my story on them because whatever it speaks to you is whatever that is. Oh, I don't want to hear the artist bullshit. He said, tell me what it means to you. <laughs> so I looked at him and I'm going, I'm not selling this piece to you. <laughs> I'm not going to sell this piece to you. I said, okay. I said, well, okay. The truth is the, it's called words unspoken because if you don't speak your truth, it will grow, This thing will grow over your mouth and you won't be able to speak. And if you don't continue, the reason it was frayed and higher here, it's going to continue to grow. And before too long, you'll be blind as well. It'll suffocate you and you'll die. If you don't speak your truth, that's what it means to me. And he goes, huh, I'd like to buy this piece. And I went, Okay, I'm sorry. I, I got to ask. I said, I said, I get the, the, the privilege of selling or not selling to people. And I said, you want the artist bullshit out of the way? I don't sell unless I think it's going somewhere that it means something. And I said, personally, you know, you just said it was going in the office, right? So it doesn't, what, what's that all about? And he goes, I'm a psychiatrist and I work with anorexic women. And he said, the issue for them in my mind is in my experience is that they can't control their lives so they can control what goes in their mouths and unless they speak out and learn to speak out what they need then they will lose it right and they can lose their lives as a result and that moment to me was my the most profound for me as an artist ever it i it gave me goosebumps i almost weeped <laughs> wept at the time because I, I, I didn't know what to say, you know? And the thought of that to this day is that what art can do on some level, the fact that it would be my piece of art that's there in that situation, which he said, I'll just put it on the wall in my office. And eventually they're gonna, the conversation will be about that piece. When you put up art in a psychiatric situation where you're working with this, people are talking, they'll be looking around and they'll see something and then, you know, if they react to it, you'll say, what do you think that piece is about? Or they'll ask what that piece is about, because it'll be something that will resonate. So it made me realize for the first time in my life what art really means. I didn't know what it meant. I, you know, I like this. I know what I like. I don't know art, but I know what I like. You know, I, I, would, I went around looking at pieces and not really thinking about why they would resonate with me necessarily, but I'd say, boy, I love this piece. And then I began to realize what art can be. It can speak. It can heal, it can, and it does. You know, this pandemic, in the middle of this pandemic, you know, how we don't, in North America, how little we value the arts. And it's quite evident through the lack of funding for filming and for painting and for art pursuit in general. There's just no, there's not a lot of respect for it in capitalistic North American society, unless it can sell for a lot of money. Mm. And if at this moment in the pandemic, if we didn't have, television and books and music and art to share and look at where would we be what would we be doing i don't know but during these times art becomes even more important in my mind 
So it was, it was a, one of those epiphany moments for me. It, it meant a lot. It was really quite something. Well, you're, you're sharing a piece that you said, you know, there's a little hole in here. She can still speak. There is hope, you know? And yeah. there's, I think it's important to remember, and I don't care how dark the situation is, there's always hope. And the fact that yeah. they're in that room with that doctor means that they're trying. And your your piece is in a place that will help contextualize that struggle. Yeah. What, what what more can you ask for as an artist? For me, that's the most rewarding moment of my artistic life, more than even, you know, the film work I've done in any level. That moment was, um, it really left a mark on me. It really did. Thank you for sharing. Uh, these, these mean a great deal, uh, to me that you've, that you've shared them. And, uh, I'd, I'd love to have you back on in the future to, to talk, uh, more specifically about, uh, the individual episodes, uh, and more of your art, uh, next year, if you are, uh, willing, um, I really enjoy talking to you, David. It's great. It's kindred spirits. So yeah, without a doubt. I appreciate your time. I'm going to go ahead and uh, wrap things up, Garwin, on this end. I will be uh, emailing you shortly. Um, but uh, once again, it's it's been a pleasure to to have you on and, and be a part of this new project. It's been great. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks, you, David. You take care of yourself. I'll be in touch with you real soon. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Garwin Sanford, everyone. You know, you get you get to watch people on TV – if you're lucky enough, you get to meet them. Um, you get to have a connection with people. And then in ways that you don't expect, sometimes you meet someone where it's like, yeah, I, I, I get I get what your work means to you. Um, I'd like to know about, you know, some of your other work. And you, you get to you, you get to really um, understand and embrace uh, another person better and more than just, you know, the actor or the character the rather the character that they played on screen. And, and Garwin um, has always been uh, uh, one of the ones for me that's really stood out. He, as, as soon as he had uh, uh, thoughts to share about Don on stage at GateCon a few years ago, because Don and I, our alma mater is the same. We both went to the same school. You know, I've, I've always felt a very kindred spirit to uh, Don S. Davis, a Midwestern boy. And um, the, to come, the, everyone has always uh, uh, truly loved Don, but, but uh, Garwin really loved Don and had a, a, a really special relationship with him. So continuing to have Garwin in, in my life in a small way is almost like having Don still there. So thank you, Garwin, for being on. Uh, we have a sponsor this month. If I can pull up that information here, please bear with me. Dial the Gate has partnered with 3D Tech Pro for the month of December to give you a chance to get your very own desktop stargate and customized ancient keychain to enter to win these items you need to use a desktop or laptop computer and visit dialthegate.com scroll down to submit trivia questions your trivia may be used in a future episode of dial the gate either for our monthly trivia night or for a special guest to ask me in a round of trivia there are three slots for trivia one easy one medium one hard only one needs to be filled in but you're more than welcome to submit up to three please note the submission form does not 
currently work for mobile devices, your trivia must be received before January 1, 2021. If you're the lucky winner, I'll be notifying you via your email right after the start of the new year to get your address and what word you want for your ancient keychain. Be sure to click uh, our partner's web address uh, for more Stargate-related merchandise at 3dtech.pro. And this lovely Atlantis model here was uh, created by Kevin Sabo. And he's just magnificent. I mean, you can't really... See, it's, it's in the dark now, but um, he's incredible. And he, we were we were talking about uh, about his work, and he's like, you know, it, it, he, it the Atlantis model arrived to me, and there was a piece broken, and he's like, I need to resend the whole thing. I'm like, no, <laughs> just, what are you doing? You know, you, how much this costs to get here? It's fine. There's a thing called super glue. And he's like, no, no, I need to resend. It's like, no, no. So I was like, you know what? Let's let's partner with one another for December. So uh, 3dtech.pro. Uh, I do have some Nareem-related art that I'd like to share real quick. So that's, that was Garwin's art. Fan art. Here we go. This guest artist is Nebulon. This is another Chibli, I think that's what they're called. Yeah, more Stargate Chiblis. So Nebulon created these. Uh, and uh, he has uh, Omok, Nareem, Travel. The assistant to Travel and a security officer here. Uh, he says, Omak is seen in the horrible outfit that they wore in Enigma. Nareem has three outfits, the horrible Enigma one, but his pretense and between two fires outfits are uh, pretty similar. I think they were the same one. We're going to have to ask Garwin about that next time. Um, the talent in this community is uh, both on the uh, professional side of the, the Stargate community and the, the fan side is just absolutely crazy and i'm i'm so privileged to be able to host a lot of that content here next week's guests live on december the 19th joseph malazzi will be joining us for part three and i don't know why my image is not showing um but yes so joseph malazzi will be joining us for part three of his ongoing talk uh at 1 p.m pacific time on saturday december the 19th david hewlett Dr. McKay will be joining us on Sunday, December the 20th at 11. Uh, that's supposed to be a.m., not p.m. Sorry about that. Guys, I am uh, sorry. I don't know what's going on. All, all my stuff is mixed up. 11 a.m., Sunday, December the 20th to 2 p.m. Eastern, uh, or at uh, 2 p.m. Eastern time as well. David Hewlett will be joining us. And then uh, two hours later at 1 p.m. Pacific time on Sunday, December the 20th, actress Jacqueline Samuda, who played Nearty, she'll be uh, joining us to discuss her role as well. And that's all I've got. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you to uh, to Garwin as well. I do have uh, some uh, questions that were given to me to uh, address. I will be addressing them next week, I promise. Uh, big thanks to my, my moderating team. Uh, you guys are fantastic. Uh, Summer, uh, Jeremy, Tracy, uh, Keith, uh, and Ian, you guys make this, you guys really grease the wheels on the show and make this happen to, for the audience, and I really appreciate you being there. Uh, Linda, Gate, Gabber, Fury, and Jen Kirby, uh, my production team, you know, this has been a good year so far, and you know we're just three months in. We've got a lot of ground to cover. I'm going to go ahead and uh, let you guys go. We'll be seeing each other next week. I'm David Reed. We will see you on the other side. Dial the Gate is hosted and executive produced by David Reed. The producer is Darren Sumner, co-produced by Linda Fury. The composer is Neil Acree. Animations by Bryce Ors. The production assistant is Jennifer Kirby. Moderators include Summer Roy, Keith O'Mell, Tracy Noller, Jeremy Heiner, Reese M., and Anthony Rowling. 
Logo designed by Deborah J. Bell. Additional effects by Thomas Tots, with contributions by model makers Chris Baker, Stephen Barr, Kevin Zabo, and Tom Paris. The archivists are Linda Fury, Zachary Adams, and Fred Eric Marcoux. For general inquiries for submissions, please contact us at dialthegateshow at gmail.com. Visit our website for the upcoming schedule, as well as an archive of our past episodes, at dialthegate.com. <laughs>